news this evening is speculation concerning the real facts behind the Department of Health announcement about a radioactive spill supposed to have occurred yesterday at the state nuclear plant. You know what you're thinking? Mine's bigger than yours, right? They're coming! The rats are coming! Thousands of them! Yeah, tons of popcorn there. Yeah. And all you gotta do is go climb a tree to go eat it. <laughs> it was a night like any other night. Then something happened. Oh, good lord. It's... It's unbelievable. It's... It's horrible. Welcome to the Really Awful Movies Podcast, a celebration of low-budget cinema. The sleep of reason gives birth to monsters. Hi, my name's Chris, and along with Jeff, we're bringing you the very best and worst of horror, sci-fi, post-apocalyptic wasteland, kung fu, and women in prison movies from the 1960s to today. Check us out at reallyawfulmovies.com. We're at downtown Toronto headquarters. Here's episode 174. Michael Winners, The Sentinel, and as we were getting together to discuss movies to talk about, I had seen half of this, not the incredibly memorable, just fantastic, one for the ages ending. You remarked that this could not be made today, and this is a phrase that could be applied to various movies from the 70s, outside of the horror space, I would say, as well. This one, for sure stands apart in, in, in uh, how would you describe it this is a supernatural psychosexual movie with elements of italian gore but it preceded not just italian that. gore but themes that were exploring yeah. a lot of like for example fulci films mm -hmm. this, is a, this is if lucio fulci made a film um completely in america with american actors and was somewhat restrained in his use of gore i mean there is gore in this but yeah. not fulci yes, gore and it was Coherent. Coherent and more <laughs> linear. Yeah. You would get the Sentinel. And this was directed, as you said, by Michael Winner. Michael Winner, best known for the Death Wish movies. Mm -hmm. He did one, two, and three. And some other Bronson films. He also directed The Mechanic. Mm -hmm. um, and what a cast. Going down the list. I mean, a you cavalcade got, of stars. Cavalcade. Yeah. You have stars of the past. You have stars of the present. And you have stars of the future sort of making their... Uh, either debuts or some of the earliest roles. And I'm talking about your Ava Gardner's, your Eli Wallach's, your Burgess Meredith's, your... Martin uh, Balsams. Martin yeah. Balsams, your Jerry Orbach's, yeah, yeah. Christopher Walken, yeah. Jeff Goldblum, Beverly, Beverly D'Angelo. The list goes on and on. Did I say Chris Sarandon? Woo, of course, yeah. Yeah, there's just so many in this movie. Uh, yeah, and it's all the better for it. But, but everything works on all fronts here because really what you have is... Uh, main character who's being whose sanity is just crumbling around the periphery. Mm -hmm. uh, you have various characters who are like the audience, sort of sharing her perceptions. That we find out they're completely upended, and everything that she perceives is entirely false. And she just completely falls apart at the fringes. It's so compelling to watch, and she's so compelling too. But she holds her own against this multitude of stars too. And this is, of course, Alison Parker. The character, yep. The character, she's a New York City supermodel looking for an apartment. Mm -hmm. And she has an opportunity to land just a really choice pad that we would kill for today. If Brooklyn Heights sprawling mansion, a room they're in, 
for the princely sum of five hundred dollars, which this I think is, is reduced to four hundred. Yeah, yeah. Basically. This place is a steal, and you know what that means in horror. There are certain supply and demand issues with this place, and mm -hmm. when something's too good to be true, it usually yeah, is. Yeah, usually is. Yeah. yeah. So this is, this is sort of like a haunted house movie, but something like no other. I mean, there, mm -hmm. there, it's interesting because we have this character. She's a model. And she's dating, talk about your power couple, she's dating a... Uh, high-powered attorney. High-powered attorney, <laughs> played by Chris Sarandon, uh, who uh, later went on to make Fright Night, and Princess Bride, a whole bunch of other movies. And they're sort of in different spaces in their relationship, in the sense that Chris Sarandon's character... Um, Michael, Michael, yeah. He wants to get a place for them to live together, to cohabitate, whereas uh, she wants a place of her own. She's, it's not that she wants to break up with Michael, she doesn't, but she doesn't want to live with him at this moment, nor does she want to marry him, because she's recovering from something very traumatic that happened to her. In, in her teens, yeah. Yeah, not, not very long ago, and something she witnessed, and she just needs her own space, so she um, enlists the help of a real estate agent, Mrs. Logan, and this would be played by Ava Gardner, and you know, she looks at this apartment, that apartment, finally she found <laughs> this incredible place. Fully furnished, yes, it might be a walk-up, you know, which yeah, is yeah. somewhat inconvenient, especially when you carry <laughs> on groceries, but... Yeah, this is uh, across the, uh, ooh, I always get the mi rivers mixed up. Okay, the East River, yeah, in, in Brooklyn Heights. Probably viewers would know this from Nicolas Cage's and Cher's vehicle, Moonstruck. Mm -hmm. This is where this was filmed, oh, really? but it also, yeah, okay. because mm -hmm. you might recognize this home. And also, well, you would most certainly recognize Michael Winner's sensibilities, because this has a death wish feel to it. The streets are kind of sinister. Mm. They're foreboding. This place, for all its beautifully laid out, furnished interior, it's not in the greatest neighborhood. In daylight, you see it's right on the water. I all have the people. no hand. I'm, I'm, I think I'm moonstruck right now. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I couldn't. Uh, I don't know. I don't know how I completely feel about moonstruck as an Italian Canadian. Uh, but Nicholas Cage is just. Is, is is glorious. Glorious yeah. wackadoodle sense. <laughs> yeah. Before, yeah, this is while he was able to be reined in, before he went completely off the rails. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, this is just, just fantastic. So, again, yeah, she's in this relationship, she wants her space, and really, what's Michael to say? The perils of dating a supermodel, mm -hmm. I wouldn't know. He lets her have her own space. She of course takes this, and again, with a discount as well, $400. It's a steal. Mm -hmm. Or is it? And as is the the case with some of these movies, you're introduced to a bunch of weirdo oddball neighbors. Yeah, so a sprawling rooming house. In many ways, this reminds me sort of like Rosemary's Baby in mm. a sense, where you have a, a woman. But that also took place in New York City. I believe so. Yeah. And I mean, there's elements of that. There's elements of another classy film, The Tenant. But the reality is, you know, that you have these neighbors that you're meeting, and you're kind of like, what the heck is going on here? There are just it's just a, a litany of oh well, bohemians, if you want to be kind. But okay, wackos, if you want yeah, to be unkind. I mean, yeah, yeah. Let's just say wackos. I mean, <laughs> one of the Okay, let's just say lovable eccentrics. Because yeah. <laughs> one of the first ones she meets is a lovable eccentric. Yeah. This would be uh, Charles... Chason. Chason, yeah, yeah. Played by the wonderful Burgess Meredith. And mm. he's just having a ball, hamming it up. He <laughs> knocks on her door to introduce himself. And he's carrying uh, a cat in one hand. And he's got a bird perch on his shoulder. Yeah. The cat's name is Jezebel. The bird's name is Mortimer. And how did you describe him? You said he was... Oh, he's uh, just foppish beyond belief. No, but so, you said something about... 
Oh, okay. An aging bachelor yeah. might have been the term for, let's say, uh, an elderly gay gentleman at the time. But he, he looks like he's a man of the theater. Mm -hmm. And he's just incredibly debonair, incredibly charming. You just want to give him a big hug. He's, he's a fantastic character. He's But he's also walking around like spouting these, these non sequiturs. Like, um, like, for example, as he's leaving, he just and remember, he didn't drink in moderation. Like, yeah. Where did that come from? <laughs> and when she finds out, he finds out about Michael, he goes, seems like an adequate lover. He never met the <laughs> yeah. guy, you know? Yeah. Exactly. And there's another line he says, which uh, sort of uh, at the very end kind of is uh, reprise, where he says, friendships often blossom into bliss. Yeah. Yeah. And, so, and I guess we were supposed to be, this is a little bit of foreshadowing that I didn't maybe pick up on, that this he was supposed to be an otherworldly type of hallucinogenic figure. Uh, I just thought this was the case. This He was just a kindly neighbor. A little eccentric. A little exactly. weird, yeah. but again, it's par for the course when you're living in a rooming house. You never know what you're going to get. Mm -hmm. He introduces Allison to a duo who really are way beyond the pale in terms of absolutely bizarre and off the charts. They are dressed in leotards. They're their sisters. Yeah. There's a wide age disparity, but they're sisters. They live together. They cohabitate. Yeah, it's like, <laughs> I always think of The Simpsons when I think of this. It's a dramaturgical diet. They're like, that one fills in what the other doesn't. One is, one speaks, the other doesn't. They're dressed similar. They have similar hairstyles. They offer Allison coffee, tea. Mm -hmm. A little hospitality. Yeah, and when the Teutonic... Coffee, tea, and a little perversion. Basically. Yeah, <laughs> when the Teutonic half goes into the kitchen to make it, the Beverly D'Angelo character starts pleasuring herself right in front of Allison. Mm -hmm. And I, I guess she and doesn't head for the... Quite so. I yeah, mean, even yeah. though it's, it's all above uh, attire, I mean, you know, it's, <laughs> it's very explicit. I believe this was, this must have been one of Beverly D'Angelo's earliest roles. I mean, obviously, I, this was before Vacation, because that's what she's mostly known for, is mm -hmm. playing... Uh, the Griswold family. The, yeah, Clark Griswold's wife. Yeah. But, I mean, man, oh, man. I mean, this scene just comes out of nowhere. And Yeah, and I, and I guess Allison must think that she's maybe a little bit developmentally challenged or something because why she doesn't head for the exits immediately when the hand starts going south of the border shall mm. we say she's got an incredibly high tolerance well she, she is visibly uncomfortable and then <laughs> when the other sister comes out the older sister and and uh, the question is raised you know what do you girls do and then we go oh we fondle each other oh boy and, was, and she actually did yeah put her, her hands down her, her bra yeah allison's <laughs> had enough she hightails it out of there and it's just one eccentric neighbor after another um but there is another person i guess we could say the first neighbor she meets but not face to face but that she sees is the denizen of the top floor apartment and this is uh, a priest that by the name of matthew halloran and he is a he's staring at the window and allison says to uh to mrs logan they will say what's up with that guy what's he? oh don't worry about him he's harmless he's a blind priest he just sits there all day and just he's kind of lost his mind a little cuckoo little senile so he, yeah he just sits there all day and he and he's played by john carradine and he becomes a very a very uh central figure later on in the movie but beyond the eccentric neighbors there's more for allison to start questioning like whether or not she's living in the right place because in the middle of, she's told that the apartment above her is vacant and at night she hears lots of noises emanating from the apartment above and then she gets invited to this really really bizarre birthday party that Burgess Meredith is hosting he's uh, he grabs by the hand he's decked out in a 
Oh yeah, straight out, straight out of Alice in Wonderland or Fellini or what? what Lovely, this yeah. is a, a a cat birthday party this for is a birthday party for Jezebel. The, the bichromatic uh, cute. I had a cat that looked like this, so weird too. Mm -hmm. This is the black and white cat Jezebel. Has a party hat on. The whole thing is just incredibly bizarre. And then the party ends up uh, becoming uh, a, a polka. polka. Yeah, yeah it's, <laughs> it's nuts. And at this point, you're thinking to yourself, okay, this is. This is where this movie's going. She's got to contend with all these weird neighbors. Something weird, something strange is happening. And we're about to sing Ghostbusters. You know, when there's something strange. in the neighborhood. Yeah, exactly. yeah. But this movie definitely pulls the rug out from under us midway through. Because when she talks to Mrs. Logan about all these eccentric neighbors, Mrs. Logan says something along the lines of, my dear... You're the only it's, resident there, other than yeah. you and Mr. Uh, Mr. Haller and upstairs. It's only the two of you. And now, at this point, she is questioning her sanity. We are questioning our sanity uh, as viewers. Because yeah. we've, we've been following this narrator this whole time who's been... And, and she's so charming. Narrator. Yeah, she's yeah. unreliable, but we're, we're so invested in her. And she's so charming and so relatable and so compelling. And... But even she, like, she's, as she's questioning her sanity, the, the real estate broker says, you know, do I have to prove it to you? Apparently so, takes her to the place, gives her a lay of the land, unlocks all the various apartments. We find out that there's really, they haven't, I think she says, oh, this one's in need of a reno. Really, it's incredibly dusty, incredibly desiccated. It's almost like the changeling. There's dust everywhere. Mm -hmm. There's old, just furniture, old furniture. Not, no yeah. one's had a party, and certainly not for a cat. Mm -hmm. Allison Parker says... There was a party for a cat, and Ava Gardner's character says, "Oh yes, dear," and sort of yeah, and nods. Mm. She's not buying any of it. And then this, at this point, because you know, as I'm rewatching this movie, I'm starting to think about uh, the, this term that's been used a lot in the media lately: mm -hmm. gaslighting, um, where because this is coming right out of the Trump administration. Because yeah, or Reddit. Yeah, <laughs> just, yeah, the the the, so, the social media site where people, or or Twitter, where people just go out of their way to make someone crazy. But they're saying like basically like that's that's the strategy of the Trump administration. Yeah, yeah. Throw so many just claims uh, out there, claims and lies and untruths and yeah. half truths and alternative facts and so on that we question our sanity mm -hmm. as to what is real and what is mm -hmm. completely just fabricated. And you know, it's an interesting term. And when I first heard gaslighting, I had to look it up. And then I like, where did, what is this? Where did this come from? Why are they using this term? And it actually comes from a uh, a old movie from 1944. Originally, it was a stage play. Directed by, uh, well, the, the movie is directed by George Cooker, and it starred um, Joseph Cotton and uh, Ingrid Bergman. Ooh. And in the movie, a husband, because gaslighting means to manipulate someone by psychological means into questioning their own sanity. And in this movie, the, a husband wants to make his wife slowly question her own sanity and feel like she's going crazy incrementally lowering the, the dimmer switch the dim yeah. well because the, the pumps being lit yeah. by gas and by lowering the lighting and everyone says it's okay darker in here no 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 and so the wife slowly feels like she's going crazy and that's what i was picking up on is that this is what is happening to allison and it's affecting her in her relationship with Michael, it's affecting her uh, on the job because she's you know she's going through photo shoots with the likes of Jerry Orbach, <laughs> uh, taking snapping her picture, or um, Jeff Goldblum is another uh, photographer and she's unable to perform. She's having these I'm unable spells. to control these wonderful Afghan hounds, which adds to the real s surrealistic, odd atmosphere. She's constantly losing consciousness. 
She's constantly plagued by nightmares. She's plagued by thoughts of steps above her in this vacant, vacant apartment. Her sanity is just unraveling. Yeah, and then for, beyond that, I mean, she, she sees cat and a bird. I don't know if it's Mortimer and Jezebel, <laughs> yeah, but yeah. it's and one Jezebel's making a meal or the other. Yeah. Ooh, boy. And she also sees her dead father. Um, yeah. and he's... Not to mention orgies featuring mm -hmm. the aforementioned attendees of this party, which may or may not have happened as she's thinking... This party may not have happened. She's questioning her sanity well, I mean, too in front of the real estate agent. Like, yeah. what was this? Was this real? Was this not real? As viewers, we're questioning our sanity. Yeah. And and of course, I mean, what she does not do is get out. She stays in this apartment. But mm -hmm. uh, yeah, as I mentioned before, she has this um, encounter with her dead father, where she basically kills her dead father again in a very effective, gory scene, and runs out in the street. Yeah, blood all over screaming her, screaming bloody murder. And she's covered in blood. And at this point, the police get involved. Oh, yeah, in fantastic have... fashion. And that's where we have the, the hard-boiled detectives, the fantastic Christopher Walken. And, and as you... Well, Walken is... Uh, he's sort of just like sort of... Uh... He's a fringe character, but he's just he's just completely bemused by this whole thing. Like, really? You know? Uh, what is going on here? And one of the lines here, because there's a fantastically written movie, not to mention acted. Mm -hmm. I, I'm a one-ulcer man in a two-ulcer job. And I wrote that down as like, what a great description of police work. I thought this was so fantastic. So yeah, the detectives become involved because there's a, a bloody woman who appears on a street corner in Brooklyn. What is going on with her? Boyfriend, lawyer Michael becomes involved, starts becoming this investigative figure. He's sympathetic to her, uh, to her accounts of what is going on, but he, he retains a sort of a jaundiced eye. Mm. He, he still wants to you know, support her and becomes involved, and we find out this backstory involving the diocese. Well, yeah, shades of um, again the Exorcist or oh, yeah, Rosemary's yeah. Baby or whatever, so you know, satanic panic movies. Mm. Uh, this we then the church sort gets involved. She starts going to church. She, I mean, she she's a basically uh, a lapsed Catholic, Catholic, yeah, and she goes back because when all this crazy shit is happening, she goes back and she's told that she comes back to Jesus, he'll protect her. Oh, yeah, and she confesses her sins, which include uh, suicide as a yeah. teen yeah. and adultery and premarital sex, all the, all the good stuff. Mm -hmm. <laughs> all the venal sins and then some. All of them, all the good Catholic mm -hmm. guilt is just brought right out. And as, as they're investigating, we find out that this building is actually owned by the church. And there's a, there's a very interesting reason why, uh, a very Fulci-esque reason why, which I don't want to reveal, I don't want to spoil. Um, it's no, a, and we should do our best not to. But the, 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 the one thing that I have to talk about, which is somewhat of a spoiler, is the climax of the film. And this is when... Yeah, we're, I guess you know, we're going to have to dance around it delicately. Mm. Uh, there's, there's a piece of... Oh, this is so Fulci-esque. I just love it. It's almost like, Ibon, Ibon, the book, mm -hmm. the book. There is a passage in a book. And wonderfully, of course, it's the obscurantist, you know, weird... Uh, semi-intelligible if you speak, let's say, French or Italian, but mostly not, Latin. And there's a passage in Latin that Michael, the lawyer, finds out about and he starts asking about it because Allison actually sees Latin when she reads English. And, and this is so... And she takes dictation. And, and oh, what a, what a neat conceit. That We're, was so wild. Yeah. And, and then when I found out what the origins of this phrase was, I thought, oh, this is fantastic because I recently read... 
Paradise Lost because I share a birthday with John Milton. And well, this is interesting. So I thought, okay, we don't want to spoil it for what. I love. This... I mean, right now I'm reading The Stand by Stephen King. And you're like, oh, in your pockets, I'm reading Moby Dick. Oh, I read Paradise Lost. Like, okay, okay. Are you uh, a lit major? Trying to think I share a birthday with two amazing people: Kirk mm -hmm. Douglas and John Milton. And a bunch of nobodies. So that, these are the two I look to. Some people are lucky enough to have all these fantastic people. I'll take Milton. I'll take what I can get. I, I was really moved by Paradise Lost because I just feel like it's one that you have to read. Mm -hmm. And when this, this oh, passage is... These are things I read, but I read it when I was in like, you know, high school <laughs> yeah. and university. Revisiting Paradise Lost. Yeah. I thought, this is just great. And we don't want to... We don't want to spoil it too much, but I just thought that was a really interesting well, passageway into the other side. And it's the, something, as you said, about Fulci that would have come out of nowhere with mm -hmm. no explanation. Here it makes sense. As a procedural, it, it fully follows a linear fashion. Mm -hmm. It's as a perfectly rational storyline for to depict the irrational. And that, that allusion to Paradise Lost, I mean, if you know what Paradise Lost is about, then you sort of can suss out what's going mm -hmm. on in this, uh, in this apartment. And... As the movie is coming to its climax, um, and again, I'm trying to dance around, but yeah, some things are happening, and it starts to ratchet up till it gets to the till, till I'm gonna say all hell breaks loose. Um, it's a perfectly great way to depict it. Yeah, yeah. and we start to see all these uh, creatures coming out of the woodwork, and this is this is where this a movie like this could not have been made today because. To depict these, um, these, uh, I guess you would say, demonic creatures, you know, screw CGI, screw getting like Tom Savini on board to do some makeup or you know who, whomever. What Michael Winter decided to do was to employ real, for lack of a better term, freaks. Yeah, and again, you can't. You would be remiss if he didn't. Of course, we've mentioned him several times. Todd Browning. Mm -hmm. This is a film we will talk about. Todd Browning's freaks. Although this yeah. might have superseded that, really, with the types of the deformities depicted, was really something out of Hieronymus Bosch. This a lot of critics took umbrage with this, and I don't know how or why these people agreed. Is well, when I say these people, do you mean the actual the, the, the freaks? The actual freaks. Why not? Yeah, but I guess, why is, not? This, I, I guess you could say is, this is a more honest depiction of people who are going in knowing they're going to pay, be paid scale. They are autonomous beings. They're, they have their mental faculties about them. Mm -hmm. If they want to do this, who are we to judge? Listen, I mean, it's I was like pornography say, yeah. or, or something. You do your, what you want to do. This was the, you know, the 70s where, you know, it was still a very unenlightened time. And I'm sure a lot of these... Uh, Gainfully employed in freak shows. I'm sure that they were being used to be. This would have been the tail end of the freak show yeah. circuit. Uh, maybe some of them were appearing on like the Phil Donahue show. I remember they would they would mm -hmm. show. F I hate using the word oh. freaks, but I mean, is there any sort of politically correct term we can use for freaks? There really isn't. Uh, just, with... just a litany of different deformities. Left for you know, I mean, oh God. the one with the protruding lower lip was the one that was just. Oh my God! It was like. Jeez, it was like a bib protruding <laughs> from his lower mouth. It might it might have been like a foot long uh, coming down, and there was, uh, I don't know how they could not have fixed this surgically, but all these people, and a midget, and mm. a guy with a severe a severe facial deformity that just, was yeah. just and beyond were, Elephant Man, really. And they were mixed in with other actors who, like, you know... Were made up, and that's yeah, always... And it, it was just so effective in terms of depicting... Um, 
something. <laughs> I don't want, again, I don't want to say. <laughs> yeah. But that instantly makes this film a product of its time because you could not do that today. Um, well, you could. You could have a whole bunch of otherworldly-looking demons, and they, you know, you could put as many prosthetics or use as much CG as you want. But the fact that these were real, honest to God freaks i, I mm. can't think of any other term it just it, it, it took it to a level of uncomfortableness that it that when the actual conclusion happened it was just it just was a gut punch it was a gut punch is this the point where we segue into what we learned well okay um sure uh, a couple things number one we talked about the 70s right and we talk about things that you can no longer do in the in the present and one of the things that i noticed it was only on screen for half a second but when we're looking through Allison's portfolio and some of the, because she would do both print and, um, and, and, and television, television yeah. commercials, mm. is one was a cigarette ad. Mm. And I remember back in the day when you would be flipping through the magazines, I'd look through, let's say, my mother's Virginia Slims. And, yeah, you would see those <laughs> print cigarette ads. Yeah, and yeah. it would always be uh, you know, a couple who looked really, they were having a great time and they were impeccably dressed and they would be puffing down one of those uh, Virginia Slims or the Marlboro Man, that was another yeah. one. And, or uh, was it the Camel? Uh, was it Joe Camel? Joe Camel, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, so that is a bygone era. Another thing, too, I mean, it's interesting that this phenomenon you had in the 70s where you had some of these superstars of two decades prior appearing in horror movies uh you know i'm thinking again like betty davis in burnt offerings yeah you know i mean these are they're, they're no longer um getting the prime roles so they're getting offered these little roles in horror films and they're taking it and some might say that they were lowering themselves um but it's interesting because they come on screen and I'm just thinking back to the like, audience of the 70s probably looked at, like, let's say, Ava Gardner and go, that's Ava fucking Gardner. Oh, and exactly, yeah. Because back in the day of, like, let's say, the studio system, right, stars were absolute stars, you know? They shined, I mean, just remember, just think of the, the mythology around Hollywood back then and, you know, La La Land. Oh, yeah, exactly. It just, so stars were stars. So when you would see an aging Betty Davis or an Ava Gardner in one of these movies or Joseph Cotton would appear in a whole bunch of horror movies and they... It, it wasn't just stunt casting. It was something very unique about it because you would still appreciate the formidability of these actors. And it made, it got me to think that, okay, well now, I mean, for example, in 2017, if you took a superstar from, let's say, 30 years ago and threw them in a movie, I guess Tarantino sort of did that with John Travolta. So yeah, career, yeah. But well, I mean, really... Yeah, he, he doesn't... He's not from the star system. He's not in the same caliber as a Burt Lancaster That's or one of I'm these saying. types yeah is yeah. that stars today are not stars, stars with a capital yeah. S so you know what are you going to do throw like um oh geez I don't know I think I think you can count bona fide male stars on one hand mm. and I think we could do that right now <laughs> <laughs> really the two Toms Will Smith Brad Pitt Tom Hanks Tom yeah the two Tom Toms Cruise, really that's Pitt. it mm -hmm. that is really it these that's the they're the star system has been really kind of faded. Mm -hmm. And I, I was thinking even of Gene Hackman. It might have been immediately post-French Connection where he's starring with Shelley Winters in this disaster movie where a ship flips upside down and they're trying to survive the sinking of this vessel, which is the Poseidon Adventure, which is one of my absolute favorite disaster movies. Uh, similarities with this movie. And now we're going to segue into what I learned as well. 70s. Well, interesting enough, just talking about other stars and another star that... I, I read afterwards, made a very quick cameo in this movie. Richard Dreyfuss apparently was... Uh, a, a, a Jeez, blink and you player. miss him. Yeah. Holy crap, I did not notice. Mm -hmm. 
but yeah, it just it's it was amplified the star wattage in this by incredible performances all around by all these, I guess, nascent stars and bona fide stars in their own right. And yeah, it's it's funny you should mention also burnt offerings because this movie shares with that the strange house element, but also the figure in the window. In the case of burnt offerings, this woman aging elderly woman who could who was self-sufficient and autonomous who could deal with her own you know well-being and taking care of herself in the attic and here the sentinel from which this film gets its name which is this excommunicated priest who watches over the proceedings and i think in quite eerie fashion in the top i guess gable window of this home this sprawling mansion and he just he looks out from there and there's something just it just shook you to your bones in that it was I'm not one to be moved too often by the supernatural, but like the Changeling, like Burnt Offerings, I was just, just the otherworldly weirdness of this movie had me, I was just riveted from beginning to end. Mm -hmm. And boy, that ending. As I said, I'd only seen 45 minutes of this prior. I was, I was wondering how I knew this movie. I couldn't recall how I in, was introduced to it, but I had not seen the ending. And really, this movie is about the ending. And, and I'm we wondering, can't touch I'm, it well, I'm, I'm, fully, yeah, because this this is a movie that it just builds upon itself. And I'm wondering what possessed you to shut it off midway through. Was it on TV? Oh, it was just and, something that I, I just had. Something else came up, and I just yeah, I just couldn't get through it that day. Just time constraints, life coming up, and. Oh, another thing I learned too, one of these just dreams that is plaguing young Allison is so strange, so Fellini-esque. Beverly D'Angelo and the actor who played her sister Gerda, these two aging ballerinas, or not aging in the case of one, younger Beverly D'Angelo, ingenue-esque, is slamming cymbals together, almost like an organ grinder monkey. And I was thinking, this is so strange. These sagging boobs, <laughs> this the gray skin the the symbols clashing like where am i what, what? this is beyond what fulci-esque yeah. this is a strange otherworldly phenomenon i was just alice in wonderland i was just totally captivated i didn't know yeah. where i was i didn't know what was going on and when she gets the rug pulled out from under her i just i was so invested in her and her constant loss of consciousness and ruining her day jobs, her her living, how she was just interacting with her friends, everything. She was watching her deteriorate was quite heartbreaking. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, uh, it's, you know, our, our character that we're invested in, she's being gaslit, the audience is being gaslit, yeah. there's gasoline all around, and this this is a very effective uh, exemplar of a movie with sort of like a, a an unreliable narrator. Mm -hmm. uh, another thing, I mean, you can call it a twist, but it happens midway through, so it's it's just sort of like a movie sort of turning on a dime and becoming something else entirely, and then at the end of it all, having another sort of like, whoa, and whoa. I, I didn't see that coming. So, I mean, you know, we, we had to dance around the denouement quite yeah. a bit, because I really, this is not a film you want to spoil. Uh, this is a film that you want people to discover, because for some reason this film is not as heralded as other films of its era. Um, perhaps the freaks have something to do with it. I mean, it's you know that's something that uh, a lot of people would uh, frown upon today. But if you could just put that aside and just watch this film on its own merits, you are going to be in for a treat. So star rating for me, I'm giving this four, four for four, me. Four, yeah, yeah, four stars. exactly. And well, I guess what more is there to say, really? Check out our four star website www.reallyawfulmovies.com for genre film reviews two to three times a week and send us your suggestions reallyawfulmovies at gmail.com and check out new episodes of the show 
every Friday for your listening pleasure, and we'll talk to you soon. Take care. Thank you.